You can be seated. If you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're continuing on this section that started in 110. Paul's been dealing with these divisions in the church, especially about people kind of bragging about how they're following one leader over against another. There's disunity in the church because of it. So let's see how he finishes out this section, what he says we need to kind of squelch this division and bring about unity. So let's read together from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I did not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are held in honor. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us to walk in this path, that you would illumine it for us so that we could faithfully follow you. We pray that you would be with us and help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So one of my favorite Christmas traditions that Allison and I have is that we watch Charlie Brown Christmas every year. If you've seen it, Charlie Brown thinks there's something wrong with him because he's not really happy that it's Christmas. He has this thing, well, I don't even know what Christmas is all about. He doesn't feel the way he's supposed to. And throughout, he talks about the commercialization of Christmas. And it kind of spearheads in this pageant that the kids are throwing where they allow him to be director because I guess they just need one and they feel bad for him. But they're doing this and they're trying to put on this big production, this big show. And so Charlie's messing things up and so then they decide they need a Christmas tree so they send him out to go get it. And they say, they say maybe he'll do something right for a change and go get the right tree. So they send him out to get this, this uh, aluminum Christmas tree. It's all showy. And he comes back with this little pathetic-looking Christmas tree. Y'all have seen it, probably with the one ornament hanging down on it. And the kids are just terrible to him. They're ruthless when he gets back. He says, boy, are you stupid, Charlie Brown. You're hopeless, completely hopeless. You've been dumb before, Charlie Brown, but you've really done it now. And Charlie says, I guess I don't know what Christmas is all about. Is there anyone that knows what Christmas is all about? So Linus says, I can tell you what Christmas is about, Charlie Brown. He gets up there and he shares the, shares the birth of Christ from Luke. And after Linus finishes, you just see this complete shift to ch- take place in the, I don't know if you call it a movie, it's like 30 minutes long. but This just complete shift happens. Charlie leaves, takes the tree outside, he's thinking he goes to decorate it, that's the one ornament, Le- leans it over and he... He then walks off, but then you have all these kids who've just heard about Christ's birth abandon their pageant and come follow him, and they see the tree laying there, and they actually take care of it. They take all the ornaments off Snoopy's house and decorate it up, and they say, you know, it's actually a pretty good little tree. And then they're there together, united, singing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And Charlie Brown comes and joins them where you were seeing division and them actually mocking him. Now they're praising the Lord together. We see this division, animosity, and even cruelty among these kids when Christmas is all about flash and presents. But when the true meaning of Christmas is revealed, this shift in perspective happens that they see things differently and they're actually united together. The Corinthians are like these kids with their commercial Christmas pageant. They've been influenced by the culture that's around them and they're conforming to it. They're jockeying for position. They're boasting about who's better, who they follow, why they're better for following them. They're putting down Paul and his way of life. And we can fall into the same trap so easily that we can conform to these values around us so easily that we look at other churches and say, why don't we do it like that? Dan and David and the elders should do this different. It should look like that. They're wrong. Instead of looking like the church is supposed to look as Christ's united body on earth. So how does Paul go about trying to help them? And how can it help us? Like Linus, he actually just corrects their perspective. He tells them the truth, what it's all about, what it's supposed to look like by showing them how they should see themselves. And with that, how we should see ourselves 
and how that should change the way that we live. So we're going to see three things about how we should see ourselves from this passage. We should see ourselves as servants of God, as recipients of grace, and as beloved children. So first, we should see ourselves as servants of God. In this first section, verses 1 to 5, Paul's using this picture of this Greco-Roman household, that they would have these servants in these different roles, saying that Paul, Apollos, and other leaders in the church should be regarded as servants and stewards. They're servants of Christ, and they're stewards. They've been entrusted with the mysteries of God. And our mystery is a little bit different. When we think of mystery, it's what we don't know what's hidden. In the Bible, mystery is what was hidden but now is revealed. So this is what Paul has been talking about. So the, the mysteries here are namely the good news of Jesus Christ to sanctify, to save, to sanctify, and eventually glorify sinners through his life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his sending of his spirit, and his coming again. And the steward was kind of this top servant who was actually put in a position of authority in the house. He's made responsible for running the household the way the master would run it. He's supposed to do it like that. He acts on behalf of the master. And he's accountable to him for the way he administers things. That's what it says in verse 2, that stewards must be found faithful. But who gets to make that determination? Apparently, the Corinthians think that they do. That's the source of some of this division. We see in verses 3 and 4, Paul says that it doesn't make a difference to him if they or if any human court judge him. He doesn't even judge himself. He does say, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't equip me. He's accountable to his master. It is the Lord who judges him. The master is the only one that gets to determine if he's faithful or not, if he has done as he should. And this will be made clear when the master comes. It's verse 5. He will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Let's say you have a house. You're living in the Herb Park neighborhood, little brick house. It's got a two-car driveway, 180 feet of sidewalk. So after it snows, the owners pay someone to clear the snow. So a young man comes out. He shovels the driveway and part of the sidewalk. He's, then he leaves. These other neighbors come out. They're starting to shovel their stuff. And they look over. And they're like, he can't even finish the job. He's leaving half the sidewalk. How are the kids going to walk to school? They say, he must be Gen Z, which is even worse than a millennial. Because obviously they're boomers. You know? <laughs> They talk about how he doesn't know a thing about hard work, how he can't even finish a job. Maybe he's too coddled and couldn't handle the cold. Say, I'd never hire him if I needed snow cleared. Then the owner of the house comes outside, looks at the job, sees them over there, and goes to talk to him. He says, hey, if y'all need any help shoveling snow, I've got a great recommendation. The young man that just did mine did a great job. The neighbors say, he didn't even finish it. Owner says, yeah, he did. He actually did more than he was supposed to. I told him to just do the driveway, but he was here early, so he did half of the sidewalk too. His brother should be coming along to finish up the job. Was the young man faithful? Absolutely. The neighbors condemned him. Write him off. 
until the owner comes and says, he actually did what he was supposed to. He did a great job with what I asked. In what ways are we like the Corinthians judging Paul? Or like the neighbors judging the young man? Especially with leaders in the church. That's what this is talking about here. Now, just to clarify, Paul's not saying here that we're to never judge. Like, we hear that all the time. Don't judge me. Only God can judge me. It's true, and it's not true. Like, here it says, only God can judge him. But in the next chapter, Paul's going to say, well, you should be judging those in the church. By that, he means that we should be confronting sin wherever we see it. But we don't get to determine if others are being faithful with what God has entrusted them. We don't know their motives and we don't know exactly to what they're called. But God will one day make that clear. So Paul's been talking about the church leaders. But then look at what he does at the end of verse 5. He makes this shift. He says, Then each one or each person will receive his commendation from God. He's saying, this is how you should look at your leaders. He says, they're servants of God. You don't judge them. Only God judges their faithfulness. Christ is coming again and he will judge them. So this is a, they're looking at the leaders, leaders, leaders. And then Paul throws this mirror right in front of their face. and says, not only them, but you also. Each person will receive his commendation from God. Paul flips from them being the ones who are judging from them actually receiving judgment from the Lord. Because the day is coming when Christ will return and bring all things to light and every one of us will stand before him. This is something that we all need to come to terms with. But if you are in Christ, if you trust in him and his life, death and resurrection in your place for your sin and you follow him, then you have nothing to fear. You won't be condemned. And yet, many of us, even us who are in Christ, we look at Judgment Day negatively. That that's when God will say we're safe because of what Christ has done, but then he'll go on to say how we should have done all these things differently. Like in the good place, he's going to whip out a file and say, here was the right, here was the wrong, ah, shouldn't have done all of this. But you're in Christ, so you're safe. And maybe that's your conscience convicting you of sin. But maybe it's a misunderstanding of the fact that God actually loves us. Look at what Paul says about that judgment day for Christians. He says, the end of five, then each of you will receive his commendation from God. He doesn't say we'll get a talking to and be corrected. He says God will commend us. God will actually praise us for what we did well. It's like you're playing baseball and you go, you go one for three with a double. God's not the father who says, well, you got out more than you got on, but I guess I'll give you a ride home. He's the father who says, great hit. Let's go out for pizza and ice cream. But do you realize that? Do you live like that? Not begrudgingly obeying God, scared of his reprimand, but actually seeking to please him because you know that he loves you and you know that in Christ you're completely accepted. If you trust in Christ, you're a servant of that God. 
accountable to one who loves us more than we can imagine. Not only should we see ourselves as servants of God, but we should also see ourselves with humility as recipients of God's grace. With me at verse 6. It says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. There's a little bit of debate about what Paul means here with what is written. But typically when he says what is written, he's referring to Old Testament. He doesn't quote any here, but he has previously. So I take it to mean, and there are others who agree with me, not that that matters, but um, that he's referring to the Old Testament, but especially what he's already previously quoted. And if you look back over the quotes, they have to do with the wisdom of this world amounting to nothing, and that those who boast should boast only in the Lord. The result of not going beyond what is written is kind of that next phrase, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. He says there's no room for this, and he uses kind of rhetorical questions. And in, in Greek, it's clear that they all mean no. We don't have that in English. You kind of get to decide, and you have to pick the context, but there's actually structure there that says no. So it's all negative answers. So he says, who sees anything different in you, or who made you so special? No one. What do you have that you didn't receive? Nothing. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you shouldn't, or as if you did not receive it? You shouldn't. One commentator then puts it like this. He says, grace leads to gratitude. Wisdom and self-sufficiency lead to boasting and judging. Grace has a leveling effect. Self-esteem has a self-exalting effect. Grace means humility. Boasting means that one has not arrived. Precisely because their boasting reflects such an attitude, Paul turns to irony, and I would include sarcasm, to help see the folly of their boasting. So we see in the next verse, he says, you have all you want. You've become rich. You've begun to reign. We're hungry and thirsty. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We toil working with our own hands. In case you're thinking the Corinthians are actually in this position you got to remember, just a chapter ago, he said, God chose what was foolish to shame the wise. Not many of you were of noble birth. <laughs> it's this irony that they see themselves this way, though it's not the truth. He says, we're fools for Christ's sake, but you're so wise. We're weak, but you're so strong. We're held in low esteem, but you're so honored. Like those kids, they despise, despising Charlie Brown, they despise Paul. They thought he should have been more like them, that he should have been wiser, stronger, smarter, more well-respected, not what he is. But who is he like if not our Savior? I remember my first semester of college, I went to campus outreach large group the first time this was before I was following Christ and there was this guy who, who came up and talked to me introduced himself and talked to me for a while and he was he was awkward played in the marching band no offense Jamie I'm just kidding um, played in the marching band he wore his pants super high um, he had a cell phone holster and he loved it like 
obviously, I was like way too cool for him. And I remember thinking after I left, he was a pretty nice guy, but there's no way we're going to be friends. And you can probably guess what happened. I began to follow Christ, get more involved with the college ministry. This guy becomes one of my best friends. (laughs) We go to church together. We start a community group together. Why? Because he became cool? No. His wife will tell you that. (laughs) Because I I started to understand God's grace to a sinner like me. This may be a shocker to many of you, but it turns out that I'm not that cool. (laughs) (laughs) Appreciate that. Uh, That... I'm no better than him, right? We're just different because we've received different things from God. That's what the cross does, isn't it? It just levels the playing field completely. All of us, we're all helpless and without hope apart from Christ. We all deserve God's wrath and curse because of our sin, because of the ways we've rejected his rule and reign over his creation. And none of us can fix it. None of us is wise enough. None of us is strong enough. All we can do is receive God's mercy by trusting in Christ for our salvation and for our sanctification. If you haven't done that yet, I urge you, there is a judgment day coming, and if you are outside of Christ, you are not safe. Trust in Him and what He has done in your place, taking what you deserve. He will save you, and He will change you. We have no reason to boast. We have no reason for any pride, because everything we have and everything we are has been given to us. As you look around this room, this is one of my favorite things about the church. Dan and I were talking about it this last week. That you look around and you see people who look like they have nothing in common. That if we weren't here, we wouldn't ever talk to each other. We wouldn't be friends. We have more in common with one another because of Christ. You look around and We have no room to think we're better than anyone else. No matter what your family, your career, your bank account, your appearance may look like. No matter how much more it might fit in than others with what the world tells us is important. We all need Jesus just the same. And we have what we have and we are who we are by God's grace alone. And on the flip side, if you're one of those who's always harder on yourself, you're not worth any less because you don't have those things. You just haven't received the same things. And that's fine. God has actually given you things that make you unique, even if you wish he hadn't. Things that they don't have, that you have, that the church needs. And God has made you in his image just the same. And in Christ, he loves you just the same. We're all alike recipients of God's grace. 
We need to see ourselves as servants accountable to a loving God and with a humility that recognizes we've received all things from him. We also need to see ourselves as beloved children called to imitate our father. Look at verse 14. It says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He's saying, you actually should be ashamed. But that's not why I wrote it. I wrote it because I love you. And I want to urge you to start living in line with the truth. He appeals to his special relationship to them. He's their spiritual father through whose ministry they were saved, who started the church. So what does he tell them? In verse 16 he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Christianity isn't simply about what you know. You can intellectually know all the right things and still not trust in Christ. What you believe has to affect the way that you live. That's what James is saying when he says, faith without works is dead. But it's also not simply about what you do. Christianity is actually about God, who in his love for us meets our greatest need where he restores us to a relationship with himself through faith in Christ on the basis of what he's done. It actually changes us. It takes a heart that is dead in sin and it makes it alive. That's the power of the cross. And if we're trusting in Christ, it will change how we live. will become more like our Savior, what we call sanctification, which Paul also says is the power of the cross. Christ saves us and Christ changes us. So what should it look like? Paul says, imitate me like a child imitates his father. And what did we already say? Who does Christ look like but Christ? Or who does Paul look like but Christ? And he says later in this book, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. What does it look like then to imitate Paul? It means taking their theology of glory where they talk about their wealth, their wisdom, their reigning, and exchanging it for a theology of the cross of this upside-down kingdom where the weak are strong, where the poor are rich, where the last are first. It means what we've actually been talking about this whole time, that we see ourselves as servants of Christ and stewards of everything we've received from Him. It's recognizing that everything has been given to us so that we have no room to boast. And then it makes taking all of those things whether it's our possessions, our intellect, our position, whatever, and using them the way God wants them used, the way Christ would use them. It's living to please Him because we love Him, because He loves us. It doesn't mean you have to get rid of everything that you have doesn't mean you always have to be hungry and thirsty, not have enough clothes, not have a place to lay your head. 
Paul says that's who we are. He doesn't say that's what I've done. Paul's saying, imitate me. And to imitate Paul is simply to live faithfully, come what may. Those things could come, but that's not what we're looking after. This faithful living is what we're looking for. That's even the way Paul describes Timothy. He says, I've sent Timothy to you to be an example and to remind you of the way that I lived when I was among you. And how does he describe Timothy? He says that he's his faithful child in the Lord. In what areas of your life do you not live faithfully? Where the thought of what God would want done or pursuing his glory never enter your mind. Where they aren't even a concern. Maybe it's not some big category. But maybe it's in the hundreds of small decisions you make every single day that actually end up amounting to most of your life. Where we can just live on autopilot, doing as we please. Instead of seeking to even use the small things to live faithfully for Christ. Paul finishes this passage by continuing on this metaphor of him as a father of beloved children. He says that he's coming to them. And he asks how they want him to come. With a rod or in gentleness. Your parents can probably relate to this. Say, do you want to obey or do you want to go in time out? That's what he's saying. But your parents can hopefully relate to this too. That if they continue to disobey, that you will follow through and discipline your children because you love them. You will discipline them to help them. You love them too much to let them continue on in these bad ways. That that wouldn't be good for them if you did. That's Paul here. He says, you're my children. I love you. I'd rather not discipline you. But if that's what you need, I will. And that's God with us too. Hebrews 12 tells us that God disciplines those he loves. That he disciplines us for our good. That we might share in his holiness. Or so that we might look more like Christ. God loves us too much to leave us in our sin. To let us remain proud and judgmental. To divide his own body against itself. Looking down on his servants and others who are made in his own image. Because he, he loves us, he will discipline us if we need it. But wouldn't you rather, by the power of his Spirit at work in you, obey him and imitate his Son, who died and rose again to save you? By seeking to be his faithful servant, humbly recognizing that you've received all things from him, and then taking and using those for his glory. That when he returns, he'll say, well done. I'm so proud of you. Would you rather humble yourself 
Or have the Lord humble you? 